Welcome to episode 29 of the Redeemed Hearts podcast, where we encourage you to allow God to transform you mentally, emotionally, and relationally by living from your redeemed heart. Your hosts, Willie and Dina Kennedy, are licensed professional counselors and are the founders of Redeemed Hearts Ministries. Hey, we hope you had a great Easter. And last week, if you remember, we brought you a sermon from Worley on the passion of Jesus' suffering. And this week, we want to conclude that with another sermon entitled, The Powerful Person of the Resurrection. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening today. Here's Worley. From 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. Paul's speaking here to his readers, which includes us. And he says, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Pray with me, if you will, please. Father, we now enter into this part of our service, and we so enjoyed being able to sing to you with the voices that you gave us and out of our hearts that you have redeemed, that you have cleansed and made new. Lord, we so enjoy walking with you and in your spirit, and we ask now that as we would think about what happened on that first Easter, that you would speak to our hearts. You would um, bring to alive, bring to life in our own minds what it is that we need to know about ourselves, but especially about you, who you are, what kind of God that you are. We know our hope is in you today and that there's really nothing that we bring except ourselves, hungry, in need of food, blind and needing our eyes opened. Lord, help us today that we might see you in just new and fresh ways. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So today we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible calls him our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. Everything about our joy and happiness as Christians today centers on the fact that it is the Lord Jesus who saved us. It's not we ourselves. It's the Lord Jesus who saved us. It is the Lord Jesus who became sin for us and took upon himself God's wrath and judgment that we might be found righteous before a holy God. Just that alone, if you're a sinner like me, is no small thing. He became our righteousness before our holy God. It is the Lord Jesus who has given us life and our lives to live, to live with hope, to live with meaning. It is the Lord Jesus who holds on to us through the giving of the Holy Spirit who is in us, transforming us, transforming our minds, our hearts as we obey him. It is the Lord Jesus who gets the credit 
for everything that is right about us and the Lord Jesus' power and mercy and grace that deals with everything that is wrong about us. It is the Lord Jesus who gets the glory. If you boast today, make sure that you boast in the Lord. I am completely confident that, it is, that at the end of the day, on that first Easter Sunday, if there were any boasting going on, the men and the women who followed Jesus were only boasting in the Lord. On that Sunday in which Jesus was raised from the dead, there had been so much confusion and chaos among the followers of Jesus. Those who first encountered the reality of the resurrection and were simply trying to wrap their minds around this amazing plan of God. If sometimes you struggle like me just to make sense of it all and to understand what it is that's going on that God has done, how we're forgiven, how we live forever, if you're like me, then you'll find comfort in knowing that on those very first days, those who followed Jesus were just trying to make sense of what was going on in their world. They certainly had nothing to boast about in their own wisdom or their own understanding. Let's pick up the story where we left off last week at the death of Jesus. If you'll remember, around 3 p.m. in the afternoon on Friday, Jesus breathed his last breath. And while doing so, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he died. The spirit of Jesus went to his father and his dead body was taken down from the cross by the rich follower of his, Joseph of Arimathea, and put into Joseph's own tomb. The women there, if you remember, were watching from a distance on the hill. They had been up close and they moved further away as the day lingered on and they watched from a distance. And then they followed this procession to the tomb and observed where he was laid and that a stone had been rolled to cover the opening of the tomb. And as it was late, they went home and gathered the spices and other items to dress his body. And then they stopped work because it was the Sabbath, Friday evening through Saturday evening, and no more work could be done. Sometime during the day on Saturday, even though it was the Jewish day of rest, the religious leaders became worried. And they went and asked Pilate to protect the tomb from the disciples who they believed might steal the body and claim that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Why not? Jesus told everybody again and again that was what was going to happen. And Pilate granted them their wish, allowing them to place his seal on the stone, the 500-pound stone. And the seal was 
to some kind of some kind of covering that could not be removed except by Pilate himself. And if you did remove the seal, you would face great penalty. So he allowed them place his seal on the stone. And then not only that, is secure it with a number of soldiers who filled the area around the entrance, deterring anyone who might attempt to get in. Now the soldiers watched their post as Sabbath came to an end and Saturday evening passed into the wee hours of Sunday morning. It was sometime then that Jesus left his father and re-entered his earthly body and brought it back to life. We don't know the details of how this happened. We know the father was involved, the son was involved, the Holy Spirit was involved. The scriptures are silent on this. We simply know that death no had no power over Jesus and that dead body was transformed into a glorified body as Jesus took possession of it once again. And and then suddenly, as dawn drew near, God caused an earthquake to occur around the tomb and an angel from the Lord rolled back the 500-pound stone in a display of power similar to a flash of lightning. He sat on the stone, and the soldiers, Matthew tells us, were petrified. They trembled and did not move. As Matthew goes on to say, they became like dead men. God had opened the tomb, not that Jesus might get out. No, for in his glorified body, we learn that he could move through walls and he could, he could go from one place to another with no effort at all. It wasn't, it wasn't so that he could get out. He had no limitation. God had opened the tomb so that man might see in. And no 500-pound boulder nor company of trained soldiers could keep God from allowing people to see that Jesus was not dead, but indeed was alive. Now, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and some other women were headed for the tomb. Somewhere about this time, maybe shortly after, we're told that Mary Magdalene arrived a little bit before dawn. It was dark. Perhaps she came from a different location Perhaps being the younger, she ran ahead. We are told that when she got there, it was dark and that the others came right after the sun rose. And she noticed while she was still a short distance away from the tomb, I would guess from here to that wall, perhaps, the stone was rolled back and she did an immediate U-turn, went no further to go to where John and Peter were staying, somewhere in Jerusalem, somewhere near Jerusalem to tell them. Meanwhile, the other women arrived and they encountered the angel who had been sitting on the stone and another angel was there with him. The women immediately fell to the ground in sheer terror. It is unclear if the guards were still there or if they had already taken off to go tell the religious leaders I think it's likely that 
after the immediate shock and their shaking and their being like dead men, they scattered. For there's no commentary anywhere that those who entered the tomb encountered these soldiers. And like any good soldier, he would have been trained to do his job. It's likely they scattered. Now the angel who had been on the stone strongly said to these terrified women, do not be afraid. Do you think that worked? It certainly had to calm them some. Do not be afraid. It's a gesture of care and kindness from God through the angel. I'm scary. Don't be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. He invited them into the tomb to see where Jesus had laid. And then he told them, go tell the disciples that Jesus was going before them into Galilee. And the women quickly left, still afraid, confused. But as Matthew says, also with a mixture of joy and anticipation. And they must have gone one way because apparently they didn't see Peter and John running to the tomb. Peter and John, if you'll remember, had been at their places, perhaps they were together, and Mary Magdalene had hurried to tell them. The minute she saw the stone rolled away. And if you must know that when she told them, Mary Magdalene was a wreck as well, saying, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Clearly, Mary Magdalene had not been there to hear the angels say, He had been risen because she thought someone has stolen my Lord. She was frantic, as you can imagine. And as John reports in his gospel, when he and Peter heard this, they ran to the tomb. They didn't walk. John says they ran to the tomb. And John, perhaps in a little bit of bragging, says that he outran Peter. He got there first. Why else would he include that? He stopped at the opening, John did. He stooped down as the opening would have been lower and not very big. He stooped down to look in, but he didn't go in. And it's hard to say where the angels were at this point. Perhaps they went for a walk. Perhaps they went with Jesus. Who knows where they were? We just know there is no mention of them while Peter and John were there. And Peter, in his brass self, his confident self, his leadership self, did not stop at the opening. He bent down, brushed past John, and went into the tomb. And then John followed Peter. And they both saw there the clothes in which Jesus had been buried in, lying there, the cloth that was used in that day to cover the face of the dead, the cloth neatly folded to the side, a subtle indicator that Jesus indeed had not been stolen by a hurried grave robber who would not have slowed down to do this. And John reports something about himself. He says he saw and he believed. Some people's faith is like that. It doesn't take much. Right away, he believed. And did you know that John was the only one in all four reports who it says immediately believed? Everybody else had doubt. 
but not John. And Peter, it says, marveled. He was curious. He wondered, thinking back in his mind, what in the world is going on here? And then the two of them left the tomb and went back to where they were staying. So are you tracking with me? An earthquake shook the ground and two angels entered the scene. One rolled back the stone, the tomb, the stone from the tomb. He planted himself on top of it. The soldiers were frozen and eventually scattered to tell the religious leaders where, as Matthew reports, they went and told them the religious leaders paid them off to spread the word that Jesus' body had been stolen at night by his disciples. And that indeed news, that report carried on past this day. It's really laughable, these disciples against trained soldiers. They could break in, move the tomb, the the stone, steal the body. We know that Mary Magdalene was the first there. She saw the stone rolled away. She hurried to tell John and Peter. The other women made it to the tomb. They encountered the angels. They were afraid. They were trembling. They went off to tell the disciples. Mary Magdalene had reached Peter and John. They sprinted back to the tomb. They inspected it. They left. At this point, no one has seen Jesus, but that all changed. As Mary Magdalene made her way back, following probably some distance behind Peter and John. Remember, she was distraught. She's crying. She's not clear-headed. She's trying to gather herself shooken, bewildered. Shortly after John and Peter leave, she arrives back again. And it's interesting, and I'm not, again, sure where they were, but now the angels were back at the tomb. Mary goes into the tomb, and there the two angels are, one sitting at the head where Jesus' head was of where he was laid, the other one sitting at his feet there together. Mary was weeping, and she says to them, as they ask her, why are you weeping? They have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. She then turned, went back out the opening, outside, upset, and runs into Jesus. Only She did not know that it was Jesus. She thought it was a gardener who had arrived early for work. Though glorified, Jesus still had the appearance of other men. In many cases, God would hide the realization that Jesus was who he was. He would shield the eyes so they could not see. So here Mary is thinking she's speaking with the gardener and she pleads with him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. I will take him. Clearly again, Mary, desperate, confused, frazzled, trying to make sense of what was going on. And then Jesus said to her, Mary, that's all he said to her. Must have spoken in a tone like that, a familiar tone to her hundreds of times, for she instantly recognized him and gasped, Teacher! She grabbed hold of him tightly and clung to him, so much so that he had to tell her, Mary, you got to let go. 
And then he told her something only the disciples would have known. It's something he had told them in the upper room several days before that, before he was betrayed. He told her, go tell them I will be as soon ascending to the Father. John reports that Mary did that. She hurried away from Jesus and went to the disciples and announced to them, I've seen the Lord. She was the first person to have seen Jesus after he rose from the dead. It seems while these things were going on, the other women were on their way to find and tell the disciples. Like Mary Magdalene, they too were rattled by the empty tomb, the angel's words. It seems they had to gather themselves. You can understand that, what that would have been like. So before getting to the disciples, they, somewhere along the way, meet Jesus. He finds them on a path. And he simply says to them, greetings. Can you imagine that? Greetings. Two days before they watched him dead, taken off of the cross, into the tomb. Today, greetings. They fell at his feet. I think that's what we'll do someday when we see Jesus. They fell at his feet and they worshiped him, it says with the same joy and fear in which they had left the tomb. And then he repeated what the angels had told them. He says, go tell my disciples, go to Galilee. They will see me there. So these women were the second group to see Jesus in his glorified body that Sunday morning. Now, we're not sure exactly when it was that Peter saw Jesus. We just know that it was either later that morning or sometime that afternoon that Jesus appeared to Peter alone and he spoke with him. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 15. And I just wonder, maybe you wonder too, could it have been that Jesus wanted that time with Peter to console him? Remember it was Peter who who denied him, that he even knew him. We don't know exactly what was said, but we do know that sometime Jesus met with Peter. Now, I want us all to try to imagine what it must have been like for these women and the disciples as they encountered the empty tomb and the testimony of the angels and even the seeing of Jesus. What it would have been like, put yourself in their shoes. No one, no one, I mean, no one thought Jesus was going to rise from the dead. The women were on their way to dress the body, only to find themselves face to face in a supernatural encounter with angels. And then soon after that, face to face with Jesus, falling at his feet, clinging to him and worshiping him in this now very alive Jesus, in this very alive body. I want to tell you about two more people that saw him that day. We don't often talk about these two. There's two more on Easter Sunday that saw Jesus before he actually appeared late that evening, Sunday evening to the disciples. This story is where you are in Luke 24, down in verse 13 and beyond. I'm going to read parts of this. I'm actually just going to tell you part of this. There was a man, Cleopas, and another person walking back from their home, excuse me, back toward their home, away from Jerusalem. 
some seven miles to the town of Emmaus. Now, we don't know for sure exactly today where Emmaus was. We just know it's seven miles from Jerusalem. Jesus walked up behind them. Jesus appeared to many over periods of days, but on this day, he chose to appear to these two, Cleopas, and it, does, and it says another person here. Maybe it's his wife. They're walking. He walks up behind them. We know because Luke tells us they were regular among the followers of Jesus. It wasn't just the 12. There were others who followed Jesus. They just weren't there all the time. And they were talking about together about what had happened with Jesus over the previous several days. And Jesus asked them who and what they were talking about. And when he did that, they stopped in their tracks. And Luke says that they stood still and looked sad. They stood still and looked sad. And then Cleopas answered Jesus' question. He says, you're the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Jesus probes further by simply asking, what things? I wonder if he held back a smile. And he got a response. And this response, I think, speaks to what the confusion that everyone had. The disciples, the followers, the people in Jerusalem on that day about everything that had gone on. Because they began to explain their sadness and their bewilderment. And you can pick it up with me here in about verse 19. They say, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Everybody hoped Jesus would be the one who would redeem Israel. He was going to be the one who would rescue them from their oppression. We'd hoped he would be the one. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since this has happened. And then moreover, watch this. Some of our women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. He was alive. And yet they were sad. They go on to say, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and they found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. Not yet. Now, I want to make some comments about the people, all of these people that Jesus had called to follow him. Every single one of them was caught completely off guard and taken back that Jesus had died. And even more now, he's alive. And if you remember, this was in spite of the fact that on numerous occasions, three 
that we know of that's recorded in the Synoptic Gospels that Jesus warned them of these things. Jesus said, as Luke records, that Jesus said days before he actually went to the cross, everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Not only did they not understand these words when Jesus told them, they also failed to understand the numerous places in the Old Testament that predicted this suffering, this death, preceding him being glorified. Jesus, as Luke tells us here, as in this passage continues, calls the men slow of heart to believe. This is what Jesus' followers, his early disciples were. Lest we think, because we often do, they were just super saints. We're not like them. They're not like us. They were slow of heart to believe. And here's where I'm going today. This is where, this is where I'm going to leave us today. Had it not been for God's supernatural intervention and opening of their eyes, not one person would have understood what was going on. God was so far ahead of them in every way, so beyond them in their human understanding that they were utterly and completely dependent on God to help them to recognize Jesus to come to an understanding of his suffering and his resurrection, which as our song said this morning, had been planned from the foundation of the world. It wasn't that they hadn't been told. It wasn't that it wasn't in the scriptures. It was because they could not see it unless, unless God intervened. Aren't we just like these early followers of Jesus? Who in here thinks that they are any different, that on your own without God's help, you would have known what was going on in those days? Let me make it a little more current. Who in here thinks without God's help we could make any sense? of what's going on in our own day, in our own lives. Paul talks about just the kind of people that Jesus calls to himself in the passage in 1 Corinthians one twenty six. People much like these who were the first to see Jesus on that Easter Sunday. And this is what Paul says. And he says about them, and he says to his readers at that time, and he says it to us. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might be in the presence of God. And because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. Why are you in Christ Jesus? Because of everything that happened on the cross. Because of God's raising him from the dead. Because of God's spirit coming and drawing you and abiding within you. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. If you have any wisdom, it's from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it was written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, you know, the disciples didn't know what was going on that day, but they eventually caught on and they understood what God had already written in the scriptures and throughout the Old Testament. Luke tells us in two different places that Jesus explained it to them that very day. First to Cleopas and and the other person who was with them on this road. It says there, you can see there in verse um, 26, It says there, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, things concerning themselves. He showed them, he taught them. And then disciples later that day, in the days following, he says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then Luke says, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So Jesus used the very scriptures that we have in our hands today to explain everything about his path of suffering and his power over sin and death. And then some 40 days after these explanations to these people, he left them with a promise that someday he would come back to earth, and then he sent his Holy Spirit to them. That was at Pentecost, to indwell them as their ongoing comforter, guide, teacher, and strength. So their ability to understand and to grasp and to live came from the Lord Jesus' intervention into their life, the Lord Jesus teaching them, the Lord Jesus sending his Holy Spirit to teach them the very words of God. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, why am I telling us this today? Why is this on my heart today? I don't know what kind of shape you're in today. You might be up a little bit. It's Easter. It's a nice day. We had great music. We're worshiping together. But I assume most of you are involved in some kind of trial. James has been telling us, we've learned, that we all at some point are involved in various kinds of trials and suffering. James says it's to be expected for all of God's children. So it's, so it's the world you live in, and it's the world the scriptures talk to. And you may or may not like that, your trial or your suffering, 
But as we learned last Sunday, we must embrace that. That is the passion of Christ. That is the path of Christ. It is the road he went on before he could get to glory. It's the road that we're on as God's children, as Paul tells us in Romans 8, verses 15 and following. He said, we receive the spirit of adoption by him we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we be glorified with him. So I assume, and partly I know, because I know you all, that in some manner, some kind of suffering, difficulty, challenge exists. But suffering is not central to our story. It's not the whole story. It's not the end of the story. Jesus is. Jesus is. For without him, we have nothing. We know nothing. Believers, without him, we have nothing. We know nothing. Are we really in tune with this? As Paul proclaimed, everything that he encountered, everything that he had, he counted as rubbish to the, knowledge, to the past surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus, my Lord. And I long to, Paul says, to share in the sufferings of Christ so that I may also share in the resurrection or the glorification of Christ, the, 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 the winning side of this. Without him, we have nothing, we know nothing. He overcame sin and death and is alive. And so now we're in this relationship with this Jesus who is everything to us, and the Father has given him the authority over everything, over the whole universe. It says he sits at the place of power. He's over the whole universe, more than anyone or any other thing in the world. What's your trial? Who's your problem? Is Jesus greater than your trial? Is Jesus greater than your problem? Will Jesus take care of you when you live in fear of the person who you think might harm you or when you live in fear to tell somebody about the Lord Jesus Christ for fear of what they might do? Jesus is greater than whatever it is, whoever it is that we face. And he does for us who love him what he did for his followers on that first Easter Sunday when they were suffering and struggling and rattled and doubting and confused about what was going on. He met them in the midst of their lost state and he revealed himself to them. And then he taught them the scriptures which told the way. He gave himself to them. When he left, he gave his spirit to them. And being gone, we still have his spirit with us until the day that we see him face to face. And then it'll be us and Jesus. And then we'll know him just as the disciples and the other followers who knew him and they clung to him personally and they didn't want to let go. 
Paul says in Ephesians 1, 19 and following, there is a measurable greatness of his power toward we who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. If we boast today, we boast what? In the Lord. If we live today, we live in the Lord. We walk with the Lord. We fellowship with our Lord. We can admit our struggle today. We can admit our sin today. We can confess our sin. We can admit we're weak today. It's in our weakness that Christ shows his power through us. Again, if you must boast today, make sure Whatever boasting you boast about, it's in the Lord. Let me pray for us. Um, We've got a couple songs we're going to close with. Father in heaven, it's good to see um, various details that you gave to us about the men and women who you chose who were not super saints, but you chose them. You gave yourself to them. You comforted them. You taught them. Lord, just what you're doing with us again and again and again. And Lord, we do not have what they have. We haven't seen you face to face. We live on your promises that you are coming back again and we will see you or we will see you when we pass to the other side through death because it can't, it, it, it has no power over us. And Lord, until then, until that day, we live with your spirit, trusting you, walking in you, abiding in you, working in our own minds and hearts that you might be central to us. Lord, I pray that your, your life may be known through us, your power may be known through us because you've given yourself to us. Lord, we confess all of this and pray it in Jesus' name. Thank you again for joining us today on the Redeemed Hearts podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode and are looking for more content from Worley and Danina, we encourage you to visit redeemedheartsministries.com. Please rate and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Spotify and share this episode on social media. Please feel free to reach out and contact us through the website. God bless.